We're continuing this week in our series um, titled The Game of Life. And, uh, and I've spent most of the week, um, really for the last two weeks, kind of contemplating this idea of life and death. We talked last week about how God, at the very beginning of humanity, um, told Adam and Eve not to eat a fruit from a particular tree. And he warned them that if, uh, if they did eat that, they would die. And we know the story, they, they ate the fruit, except the kind of weird detail is they didn't die. At least not the way we generally think of death. Uh, But as we unpacked it last week, we came to the conclusion that Adam and Eve, as they experienced this kind of new reality after eating this fruit, so different from the full life they had enjoyed, absolutely did die. The moment they ate the fruit, whatever richness, whatever fullness, whatever connectedness they had to one another, to the very planet, to God, and to their own soul, was dead. Uh, and they were offered death and life, and they chose death. We also talked last week about how Moses, on the heels of this amazing exodus from Egypt, offered the Israelites a choice. Uh, he said, I offer you this day death and life. Oh, that you would choose life. But just as the death that Adam and Eve were warned of by God didn't look like the death we think of when we think of death, Neither did the life that Moses offered through the Torah in Deuteronomy look like what we think of when we think of eternal life. Moses didn't promise them an ethereal, faraway dwelling place when they die. He said, when you, when you obey these commands, when you, when you obey this covenant with God, you will have, you'll experience increase and fullness and meaning and blessing. Moses basically promised them real life in this life. So in light of this new study on life, I spent the last two weeks kind of thinking about life and death a lot. Not in like a morbid way, but in a morbid way. It was. Um, and mostly this kind of razor thin edge between death and life. My very first memory of life and of a life and death situation when I was probably four or five. Um, my mom and I used to hang out at this small town bar where a bunch of her friends would go. I was kind of the bar's mascot. Um, and this was the 70s. Don't judge. It was a different time. Um, but everybody at the bar used to give me 50 cents. And I would run over to the cigarette machine and put in the 50 cents and pull that big handle. Anybody remember the cigarette vending machines? Yeah, I'd put in the 50 cents. I, they would tell me what brand. I knew all the brands. I was very proud of that. I'd pull the handle. The cigarettes would drop to the bottom and I would deliver them to my customer. And for this service, I got soda, um, which was a totally good deal. And this was, like I said, this was the 70s when cigarettes were still good for you and secondhand smoke made you grow big and strong. So stop judging. Um, but I remember one time we were hanging out at the bar and this older guy collapses to the ground. And I, if I remember right, he was even doing the grab your chest, I'm having a heart attack thing. And, uh, and I had to actually text my mom to get the details this week because I... I, could, I couldn't remember. All I really remember was my mom saving this guy's life. And, uh, and my actual memory was that my mom was like totally and completely bossy. Like, and what I mean by that is she took total control of the situation. And I'd never seen this side of my mom before. My mom's a lot like me, which means she's kind of equal parts genius and total airhead. And, um, and so when you, when you meet her at times, you're like, that's the ditziest woman I've ever met in my entire life. But then when you see her in her element, she's easily the smartest woman I've ever known. And so, you know, I've, at this point, I had only known mom, mom. I'd never even seen nurse mom. And so I, when this guy hits the ground and my mom takes over, I was like, a, in my four or five year old mind, I was like, my mom is like a superhero. She just completely snatched that guy out of death, you know. 
um, what was funny is when I text my mom um, to ask the details, what I was actually doing is, is asking if he lived, because I couldn't remember. And I was like, that'd be a terrible sermon illustration if the guy just died. But, um, but he, did, he did live. But what my mom told me was that actually what happened, and my mom's actually watching today, hi mom. Um, uh, what actually happened was the guy hits the ground grabbing his chest, and somebody starts doing CPR without taking a pulse. So this guy's like... Uh, and my mom, knowing how it works, checks the guy's pulse. He's got a steady pulse. My mom is like screaming at this guy, you're going to kill this poor guy. Get off his chest. This guy's trying to like establish a secondary heart rate. You know, and, and so my mom has to basically push everybody away and go, you guys are all idiots. Get back. And that's what I remember with my mom. Like, man, my mom is a boss. Like, look at her go. But, uh, but we all have stories like this. We all have... Uh, we all have these moments where we experience something really, really close to life and death. And, uh, and, and it kind of, um, and even some of us have the moments where we're like, I don't know why I'm alive, honestly. I had one of those. I was in a car wreck and uh, somebody T-boned me going about 45, hit my door, smashed my side of the truck all the way to the gas pedal. And I wound up in my buddy's lap because I was not wearing my seatbelt. I'm one of the really rare people who's only alive because I wasn't wearing my seatbelt. And, uh, and, um, and my truck, like, where I was sitting was gone. And I was, I wound up on the other side of the seat with nothing but a bad bump on my head and a really sore bruise. Like, I don't know why I'm alive. I have no clue. And here's the worst part. I got a ticket for not wearing my seatbelt. <laughs> yeah, that was ridiculous. But all of these stories feed our fascination and even our kind of mysterious, superstitious relationship with life and death. And into this kind of mystique steps Jesus. And he says loud and clear, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. So if, if this is why Jesus came, if, if this is why he lives the life he lives, if this is why he dies the death he dies, and above all else, if this is why he raises from death to, to crush our greatest enemy, then we should know what this abundant life is all about. Well, last week we broke down yet again the four areas that Adam and Eve really died. These four deaths shape a lot of what we do around here. For the very first time, Adam and Eve sinned and they looked at themselves and they didn't like what they saw. They felt shame for the very first time. You know, they, and they recognized, I don't, I'm not comfortable in my own skin anymore. That's the first time their relationship to themselves died. And then God shows up and they hid from Him. They'd never hidden from God before. They'd never had that instinct before. The relationship with God died. And then they started to blame one another. She did it. It's her fault. One chapter ago, they were going, we're one. We're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, they're pushing the other one away and going, no, it's her fault. The relationship with the other was broken. And then God comes and says, from now on, work is going to be hard. Your relationship to the planet's going to be hard. You're going to have to scratch out a living. Their, their relationship to their vocation and calling was dead. And so all four of these relationships die. And this week we're diving into the relationship with God. When Adam and Eve chose their own path over God's path, their relationship with God dies. And as soon as God shows up in the garden... As I said, they hid. They'd never done that before. This closeness, this connectedness that they had had was gone. But Jesus not only modeled for us what a restored and, if I can say, resurrected relationship with God could look like, but he taught us some incredible stories about it as well. I'm titling this message in our game of life, Move One Step Up. 
And our passage contains maybe one of the most well-known stories that Jesus told. The story's inspired art and song and theater and movie and is recognized inside and outside the faith as one of the kind of truly inspiring pieces. And we'll be reading Luke's account of it, which is in Luke 15, if you want to read in your own Bible, starting in verse 11, but we will also have the words on the screen. It says, To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. A younger son told his father, I want, to, I want my share of the estate now, before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between the two sons. A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land where he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said uh, to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worried to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what's going on? Your brother is back. He told him, your father has killed the fatted calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when the son of yours comes... Back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. This is the word of the Lord. The prodigal son um, story, as I said, is one of the most familiar stories that Jesus told. And before we dive into kind of its full meaning, we need to um, set up uh, what is going on here because there's actually a lot happening um, in the in the peripheries that informs this story. And as usual, we're going to do a little nerd work at first on the passage before we get into what it has to say to us today. Um, Jesus tells this story as kind of the third, final, and most intricate of a, of a trilogy of parables um, all about lost items. Jesus tells about a shepherd who loses a sheep, a woman who loses a coin, and a father who loses a son. And the, dru- the truly beautiful part of this story is the way Jesus uses the first two to set up the third one. Watch what Jesus does here. In the first parable, um, when he was talking about the lost sheep, Jesus says this, If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? He Won't he leave the ninety-nine uh, others in the wilderness and go search for the one 
that is lost until he finds it. We have this tendency to read the, the story of the, the, the one and the 99 as though it shows how loving Jesus is, that he'll leave the 99 to find the one. And that's the way we generally think about the story, that Jesus is this awesome shepherd who will leave the 99 and find the one. That's not the way Jesus tells the story. The way Jesus tells the story is where he's, he's setting them up for this obvious answer, which is, of course, any shepherd worth his salt will leave 99 to go find the one. You know, it, it, no shepherd just goes, ah, shucks, lost a sheep. You know, I've never worked much with sheep, but I grew up working a dairy farm. And, and if a dairy farmer has a hundred cows, he doesn't go, bummer, lost one. Well, at least I still have 99. I have personally spent time in the woods and in the corners of backfields hunting for a calf we couldn't find because you don't just let one go ever. And so Jesus is using this story to set him up. He's going, if you lost a calf, wouldn't you find it? And of course, the, the obvious answer is yes. Any, any farmer would do that. Um, and then he gets onto the story of this woman losing a coin. He says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house, searching carefully until she finds it? And again, Jesus tells the story in such a way where the obvious answer is yes. Yes, she would. Anyone with only $100 to their name goes hunting for a $10 bill if they drop it. Nobody gives up 10% of their income without a fight. Hello? Nobody gives up 10% of their income. Feels like there's a preacher joke here, but I can't remember it. So what he's done here is said, of course, you would go to any length to find 10% of your income. Of course, you would go to any length to find a missing sheep. And as soon as Jesus gives them nodding along, yes, yes, of course, of course, of course, that's where he tells the story that makes them uncomfortable. And this is where it gets really good. This entire teaching... Uh, including the kind of beautiful setup that precipitates the hook that he's about to set, um, happens because the Pharisees are disapproving of the people that Jesus is associating with. And all Luke really tells us in this actual passage is that he's eating with tax collectors and notorious sinners. Um, but it's actually much more than that. Um, to get to the real issue, uh, we have to look at the setting. Luke, the gospel that we're reading uh, today, has this kind of unique and powerful um, element to it uh, that is really cool once you know it's there. We call it the Lucan Travel Narrative. Um, if, you've, uh, if you've never heard of it, um, look at Luke 9.51. The author records this detail. At this time, drew near, or as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So um, when Luke writes this, Jesus has been ministering around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the last town mentioned is Bethsaida. It's up there in the north. You can see Jerusalem way down in the bottom. So Luke says, when he's, the last reference to a place he has is Bethsaida, he says, now Jesus resolutely set his mind to go to Jerusalem. So uh, that means he's going, whoops, did I do that? Go back down. That means he's going to Jerusalem. Clear down here. But he has to pass through to get from Bethsaida to Jerusalem. He has to pass through Samaria. Okay. That's where he has to go. And, and I don't uh, have time to like... Uh, in fact, the very next verse after verse 51, where, where he tells him, you know, he resolutely set his mind to go to Jerusalem. It says he sent messengers ahead into a Samaritan village to prepare the way for his arrival. So we know he pretty much goes immediately from verse 51 around Bethsaida, into Samaria. The very next verse, he's, he's setting things up for his trip to Samaria. Okay, and I don't have time to read ten chapters of Luke for you, and you wouldn't want to hear me do it anyway. Um, but go home and double-check me, because there are no other geographical references other than times when he says, 
continuing on his trip to Jerusalem or uh, at another village in Samaria. Those are the only references to geographical um, locations until we get to chapter 19, verse 28. When he says, after telling this story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. He came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany in the Mount of Olives, and he sent his two disciples ahead. Bethphage and, uh, and Bethany are these two small towns just outside Jerusalem where Jesus kind of stages himself for the Holy Week um, adventure that we've been talking about for the last month. So that's where he's kind of staying while he's going into Jerusalem every single day um, during Holy Week. And so what John tells us is in chapter 9, he leaves Galilee in the north to head down to Jerusalem. And in chapter 19, he arrives, which means 10 chapters of Luke happen in Samaria. Okay, this is important. Um, so 10 chapters happen. Why is this important? And I don't have time to go as deep as I would love to. I would love to completely unpack this. We don't have time. But um, Galilee, Samaria, and Judea, that whole section there, was the original Israel. When Israel took the promised land, that's what they took. Everything circled in red right there. Um, and dating all the way back to David's reign, these groups didn't exactly get along. Um, in fact, David, when he was, uh, when he was first king, was only king of the bottom part. The other ones had their own king. They didn't want David. They had a king named Isbosheth. And, uh, and so for several years, David was only king of the bottom. And kind of what made his reign beautiful was eventually the northern kingdoms came down and said, hey, we want you to be our king too. And David was the first time the whole nation was unified. That was kind of the beautiful part. And his son Solomon kind of held it together, one nation. And then as soon as Solomon um, died and his son Rehoboam took over, they split again. And the northern kingdom chose their own king. The southern kingdom had their king. And, uh, and they were kind of like two totally different nations. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, they tell the two totally different uh, storylines. And um, and the northern kingdom tried to worship God for a little while, but they had some problems. They didn't have the ark. They didn't have the temple. They didn't have uh, any of that stuff. So they're kind of doing this, this adapted worship of God, but not really the way the Torah outlined it. They don't have any place to do sacrifices. They're kind of building their own places of worship and eventually they just leave God completely. And they push God too far and despite God sending prophets, they wind up um, being taken captive into Assyria. Another nation came and conquered the northern part. Um, and not long after that, the southern part does almost the same thing and they get conquered by Babylon. So both nations separately get conquered by two different nations. And, uh, and, is, and, and here's where the divide really gets deep. While the southern group is in Babylon, they, um, they work really hard to stay Jewish, to like maintain their Jewishness. They created the role of the rabbi. They canonized the Old Testament scripture. They created the synagogue where they could all meet and stay together and be and act and live Jewishly. I don't know if that's a word. Um, but, uh, but they worked really, really hard to stay Jewish. In fact, when you read the book of Esther and how Naaman wanted to kill all the Jews because they were so different, that's kind of a testament of how successful they were at maintaining their Jewishness and what risk they took in doing so. And so they're being very, very careful to stay Jewish. They even kind of reinterpreted the Torah to where they believed you could, you could rather than having a sacrificial system, because they don't have a temple, so they can't do sacrifices, they kind of reinterpret it where you can live good enough that you could actually be holy and not need the sacrifices, because they kind of had to, because they couldn't do sacrifices. And so... Um, so meanwhile, while they're working super hard to stay very, very Jewish... 
the northern tribe just em- fully embraces Assyrian culture. They, uh, they adopt the lifestyle and the worship practices and the language, and they even marry Assyrian families. And so they just kind of wholesale give up their Jewishness and become Assyrian. Most of these practices would have, would have offended a Jew anyway, but when you're the Jews that are working really, really hard to stay Jewish, it really upsets you that the other side is not. And as much animosity as, as this caused, a couple hundred years before Jesus, we talked last week about the Maccabees, or maybe two weeks ago about the Maccabees coming and, and, uh, and, and reclaiming Israel from Antiochus Epiphanes. It's the first time Israel had been free in a long, long time. And, and after they freed um, Israel, the, the lower kingdoms anyway, kind of around Jerusalem, Judea, they went on a, like an evangelistic mission up into Samaria and the north part to say, hey, come back to God. It's kind of a, let's wipe the slate clean and come back to God. Galilee, up where Jesus is from, said, yes, we want to be with God. So they kind of embraced the Jewish life again. This kind of huge revival happens in Galilee and, and a bunch of the, the northern kingdoms come back. Samaria in the middle says, no way, we're not having it. Get out, of our, get out of our land. And so as though the rivalry wasn't deep enough, the southern kingdom going, okay, we'll take you back. Let's just be one nation again. That middle chunk going, we're, we don't want to. Um, really kind of established once and for all, these tribes are lost. They're reprobate. They're not us. You may grow up in school with like a real rival, like a real school rival. Anybody? Anybody hate the Raiders in the 90s? Like, remember that? Remember how much we, like, they're criminals. We, I think most of them, you know, do drugs. Like, we just, you know, you just hated them for whatever. I grew up in a town that had, like, a real rival, Tonganoxie. Anybody from Tonganoxie? Good, we can talk about them. That makes it way more fun. Um, when I was in high school, we hated Tongi. Hated Tongi. When we went to the bathroom, we called it taking a Tongi. And I'm, that's what our, that's what our coaches and teachers called it. Like it was, we hated them. And my junior year, it got like bad. Like several people got beat up at parties. One time after a rain, a bunch of them in a big four by four tore out in my coach's front yard and just trashed his lawn. Somebody broke out the windshield of my truck one time when I was parked on the street. Like it was bad and expensive. And, uh, and the worst part is we had no idea why we hated each other. Like for the best I could piece together 10 or 12 years before my time, uh, there was like some really important game and somebody won and there was rumors of them cheating. And so we all hated each other ever since. Now imagine that only extended over 1500 years. Like that's, that's what was going on between Judea in the south and Samaria right in the middle. These are the bad guys. And in today's passage, Jesus is sitting right in the heart of Tonganoxi. I mean, Samaria. He's sitting right in the heart of the bad guys' place. And he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And, and, and what's funny is that you dig into this travel narrative when you realize this big chunk of scripture happens in Samaria. There's a lot of really fun stuff there. There's a spot where Jesus sends out 72 of his followers and he says, go out and preach in my name. That's happening in Samaria. Where he gives his little speech about how rich the harvest is, how we need more people to go out into the harvest. That happens in Samaria. So Jesus is, once you know the travel narratives there, it's really kind of fascinating um, how much stuff happened while Jesus is in Samaria, the land of the bad guys. So, it's no wonder that the Pharisees are very upset that Jesus is sitting down eating with these people. These are tax collectors and sinners, which upset them anyway, but not just that. These are Samaritan tax collectors 
and sinners. This, these are the lost tribe, the reprobates. And Jesus is acting like they have a seat at the table. And this is where it gets really nerdy and kind of fun. Jesus closes out this parable um, with this statement. He says, For your brother was dead, who was dead has come back to life. He was lost and now he's found. This statement sounds so natural to the Christian ear because we've built and shaped our very language and a lot of our metaphors off of this understanding of, of dead coming back to life. We're used to this. This is normal to us. In fact, our baptism liturgy says, buried again unto death, raised again to newness of life. We hear this all the time. But think about this phrase in the context of this story if, if you've never heard it before. If you don't have all that kind of, uh, kind of built into you about death and life, this is the first time you've heard it. And, and this, this father is talking about his son coming back and he says, uh, my son was dead and now he's come back to life. It sounds a little melodramatic. Like, dude, your son was out partying. I don't know that he was dead. Like, you know, or, or maybe even delusional. Um, and, and as I dug in, to a first century reader, this phrase is not only odd here, but actually very specific and strategic. Um, in fact, this connection is so weird that when I first found it in a commentary, I was like, nobody's going to believe me that that has to do with that. So I took a clip of my commentary and actually put it up. It says, for Jesus to tell a story about a wicked son lost in a foreign land who was welcomed back with a lavish party. This is bound to be heard as a reference to the hope of Israel. This my son was dead and is alive ever since Ezekiel 37. The idea of resurrection has been used as picture language for the return of, ex- of uh, from exile. So I read this in a commentary and I'm like, what in the world does this have to do with Ezekiel 37? So then I had to like dig in and I went and found some other commentaries that talk about it and found out that the idea of the dead coming back to life was a fairly new understanding in Israel. There's really not much about resurrection in the Old Testament. There's little hints here and there, but it's not a bold teaching um, anywhere in the Old Testament. It's, and, and it really just showed up in Jewish thought in about a couple hundred years before Jesus. And when we hear about it in the New Testament, how the Pharisees believe in resurrection, the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection, and they kind of try to get Jesus trapped in resurrection debates. It was a hot debate in the time. And come to find out, the passage that first got Jewish thinkers thinking about resurrection was Ezekiel 37. That's the passage that they always went to. This valley of dry bones was the passage that... The Pharisees went to to say God is eventually going to raise the dead. They took it very, very literally and, and said he's going to raise the dead. And so this idea um, of the dead coming to life, of resurrection happening, uh, comes from Ezekiel 37. Uh, which is really cool because it really fits into our study about life and uh, resurrection life especially. Here's how it reads. The Lord took hold of me, and I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord into a valley filled with bones. He led me all around uh, among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground. They were completely dried out. And then he asked me, Son of man, can these bones become living people again? Oh, Sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. Then he said, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. You guys remember the fun little uh, Sunday school song? Now hear the word of the Lord, the leg bone connected to the hip bone. No, don't sing along. That's fine. Whatever. 
Dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm going to put breath in you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This is the Valley of Dry Bones they, they, uh, that inspired the fun little song. Ezekiel does what God tells him to do. He speaks the way God tells him to. And God uh, gives this explanation for this little exercise that he takes uh, that he takes Ezekiel through. He says, Then he said to him, Son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, We have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore prophesy to them and say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, oh, my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you and you will live again and return home to your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord, uh, that I, the Lord, have spoken and have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. So ever since the Pharisees begin to kind of interpret Ezekiel 37 to mean the Lord will literally resurrect his faithful people, um, they link this resurrection to a return home from exile, to, to all the promises of Israel coming to pass. Actually, they saw this as like a new exodus where God, through a Messiah, a lot like Moses, um, would throw off imperial tyranny and return everybody to their home. But this is still in Ezekiel 37. This is the part that the Pharisees like to leave out. The very next passage says, Again, this message came to me saying, Son of man, take a piece of wood and carve onto it these words. This represents Judah and its allied tribes. That's the southern part of the map. Uh, and, and, uh, and this, oh, and then take another piece of wood. And carve these words. This represents Ephraim and the northern tribes of Israel. Now hold them together in your hand as if they were one piece of wood. When your people ask you about this action or what it means, say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will take Ephraim and the northern tribes and join them to Judah. And I will make them one piece of wood in my hand. Then hold out the piece of wood you have inscribed so the people can see it. And give them this message from the Sovereign Lord. I gather the people of Israel from among the nations. I will bring them home to their own land from places where they have been scattered. I will unify them into one nation under the mountain of Israel. One king will rule them all. No longer will they be divided into two nations or two kingdoms. So this prophecy that was the seed of the entire Jewish understanding of resurrection was also the prophecy that prophesied that these tribes, this sun, if you will, that had left and worshipped other gods and, and wasted all of its wealth on all manner of debauchery and completely debased itself with another kingdom, would be brought back and not just like tacked on, but that they would be one unified kingdom again. So, done with the nerd work. Let's go back to... Jesus' story. Here Jesus sits in the middle of Samaria, this lost kingdom of of reprobates, eating with sinners. And in come the Pharisees uh, who don't like what's happening. And Jesus starts to tell them these stories. He says, wouldn't you go out and find a lost sheep and, and actually celebrate if you found it? Wouldn't you go out and find a lost coin and, and, and celebrate when you found it? And right when he has them on the hook, he tells them this scandalous story 
of a father who accepts his debaucherous son. And right at the end of the story, after highlighting the, the grumpy older brother response, Jesus drops in this, this resurrection reference about being dead and coming to life. So before we go any further, can we just say right off the bat what a master communicator Jesus was? Like, awesome what he's doing here to mess with these to mess with these Pharisees. He sets them up with two stories with obvious conclusions. Then he tells them the real story at the end, and he says, "Oh, by the way, this is exactly what was prophesied. This is exactly what Ezekiel said was going to happen." This is the story. And here's why I give and belabor all this background of this parable. Because this is not just a parable. Jesus doesn't just make up a fun story like a philosophical exercise where we can find ourselves in the younger brother's spot or the older brother's spot and, and this, this game we play in our mind. This isn't just a, a, like a fairy tale with a moral attached to it. Jesus is offering this parable as an explanation for exactly what he's doing at that table. This isn't just him giving a, a fun little mental exercise. He's saying, I am doing what was prophesied that I should do. I am doing the exact thing the Messiah was supposed to do. I am coming and welcoming in the lost. I, and it's happening right here in front of you, which is what I want to wrestle with today. Every aspect of this story today is God-driven. The prophecy in Ezekiel is given by God. Jesus, the Son of God, is fulfilling that prophecy right smack dab in the middle of Samaria. And when confronted, he tells a story about a, about a father who initiates restoration. The son was asking for a job, not restoration. But the father restores him. When the older son rebels and stays outside, the the father goes to him to restore relationship. So as we look at how we receive life, resurrection life, life from death in our relationship with God, I believe the most important thing we have to get right off the bat is that a life-giving and resurrected relationship with God is is not something you attain. It's something you receive. It's something God gives. God is not standoffish. When humanity first broke their relationship with God way back in the garden, God still showed up. He showed up ready to walk with God in the cool of the evening like he always had. I, Adam was the one that hid. Not God. God didn't say, you've offended me and pull back. God still came. Adam hid. In Ezekiel 37, the northern tribes are not seeking God, wishing he would just accept them again. They rejected the offer by, made by the Maccabees to return. They don't want anything to do with God. They weren't desiring God's presence, but God said, I will bring them back. It's a work of God. In Jesus' story, the Father doesn't send the Son away. The Son leaves. And when the Son comes back, the Father runs to Him like He sees a speck on the horizon and He hopes it's His Son and He takes off. The older brother doesn't come storming into the party, kicking things over, saying, this has to stop. He pulled back from the Father and the Father comes to Him. God is always drawing near to you, to me. We don't earn our way back to God. We don't build up a spiritual pedigree so we can finally experience a full and and rich relationship with God. That is not how it works. In fact, I think the way it usually works is the way it works with with the younger son. 
He comes back looking for grace. He really does. I mean, he was asking for a job, but not like a normal worker would ask for a job. He's coming back like as a son asking for a job. I think he's pretty sure he's going to get the job because he's a son. You know what I mean? Like, so he comes asking for, for grace, but he has no idea what grace is. He comes like asking for a sip of grace and God does the like victory Gatorade bucket dump of grace on him, you know, which is the way I think it usually works for us. We, we want grace. We just don't have any idea what that means. But he obviously has no idea what's going to happen. And when it comes to the older brother, see, a lot of people have a hard time with this one because the older brother kind of gets treated badly. But this is the most jarring statement in the whole parable for me sometimes. It says, my father said the son, this is talking to his older son, look, my dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. I mean, the way Jesus tells the story, he's obviously indicting the Pharisees for not accepting the restoration of the Samaritans. But can you hear the grace in that line? The older son's complaining about not getting a party. I never even got a goat to have a party with my friends. I hear you killed a fatted calf for him. And the father says, it's, it's all yours. If you want a goat, have the herd. It's all yours. The father isn't angry with the older son. In fact, I want to say this. If you are an older brother, and I know some are, some, some are like, they hear these wild testimonies of people being nuts and, and Jesus accepting them back. And you're like, you know what? I've pretty much always tried to follow Jesus. I've pretty much always, always tried. And, so, and sometimes this parable can sting a little bit because you're like, I've always tried to do it right. And, and, and when I read this parable, it makes me sound like the jerk. Because I've always tried to stick by God. I hope you will hear, if that's you, I hope you will hear those words today. Look, my beloved, you, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. If that's you, I hope you hear those words today. That God is not, when you read this parable, God is not angry with you. This is a story about grace, period. Jesus is demonstrating every day that he's in Samaria, that he, he has a heart for restoration, for life. He came to resurrect dead relationships in the deadest of dry bones. God is not hiding from us. So stop hiding from Him. How do we respond to this? Chronologically, the the book of Genesis, it's the relationship to the self that breaks first. The moment they ate, they looked down and saw that they didn't like themselves anymore. But we decided to treat with the relationship with God first because I will say this. When it comes to restoring broken relationships, if you don't get the relationship with God restored first, you don't stand a chance on the other ones. So we decided to do this one first. And, and peace with God. If you don't find peace with God, I love Romans 5.1. It's my favorite verse. It says, now that we've had this redemption in Christ, we have peace with God. Peace. How many of us really experience that? Like we have this tendency to, like we're a little bit afraid of God. We're trying to impress God. Like we're really scared when we mess up. But according to the scripture, we have peace with God. God's the one cheering you on. When you fall and get back up, he's the one going, awesome, get back up. Yes, go. He's on your side. And peace with God is on offer today. As I said, Jesus was, was, wasn't just telling a story about a man with two sons. He was, he was explaining what he does. He was explaining, this is what is happening. It's what I'm doing in Samaria. It's what I'm doing in Wellsville this morning. And all he asks us to do is accept him. That is it. Stop hiding. And I promise when you turn to God, 
looking for grace and life and relationship, however much grace you are hoping for, He is going to dump way more than you request. Because you need way more than you realize. Which is okay because you are far more loved than you ever dreamed. And the thing that I love about this link between the prodigal son and, and Ezekiel 37, these bones, is, is frankly because it really fits into our story for this, for this series. When we're talking about resurrection life, to, to want to tell a story about, about a prodigal son being reunited with his father, which is the story I wanted to tell, and then finding out that that's linked to this story about literal resurrection is pretty awesome. And, and honestly... I've had this really weird relationship with Ezekiel 37 for about a year now. Um, about a year ago, the song we opened with, Rattle, was came out. And it, I love the bluesy kind of rock groove to it. And so I played it all the time. And my wife heard it. And so it was kind of stuck in her head for a while. And, uh, and then when she was doing her, like, read through the Bible plan, you know, in a year that she does um, every year, she hit that Ezekiel 37 passage with that song kind of in the back of her head. And normally I think she just kind of, we have, we've always kind of cracked jokes about Ezekiel. Um, and she, she normally just kind of skipped over this because it sounds a little weird and zombie-ish. And, and, uh, and, uh, and frankly, Ezekiel has this tendency to sound like he was on some really great hallucinogens every once in a while. Like Ezekiel's a trippy book, um, for real. And so, but this time with that song in her head, it kind of, it kind of grabbed hold of her. And, uh, and so she, she started working on me. She was like, hey, you, uh, you really need to teach on Ezekiel 37. And I was like, babe, I can't do it. Ezekiel is a drug dealer and, and like a drug, <laughs> druggie. And, and that's, uh, that's too deep waters for me. I can't do that. And, uh, and, and so, uh, so then she started getting sneakier. Every time I write a sermon, I let Esther read it and, and she proofreads it and fixes my spelling and things like that. And then she, uh, she also reminds me of some of the stories that I tell, like, hey, that one story would go good here. And, and, uh, and so whenever I like tell stories about Esther, I have to hold them back until after she's proofread it and then I can put them in. But, um, but for like the last year, every time she proofreads the sermon, she was like, hey, you can say something about Ezekiel 37. <laughs> I was like, babe, it does not fit this. <laughs> This passage, I can't just cram it in. And it's weird. I don't know what to do with it. I have no idea what to do with Ezekiel 37. And then when I'm reading this week and, and, and my study leads me straight from the prodigal son story into Ezekiel 37, it was pretty, pretty awesome. And the midst of this story that we all know so well about this rebellious son and this judgmental brother and this incredibly loving father is this reference to resurrection. My son that was dead has come to life. The reference to God speaking to dead things and bringing them back to life. And, and this isn't just God showing off. This is God in His grace saying, not even death will keep me from you. This is a father saying, you cannot get so far away from me that I can't speak a word and bring you back. This is a God saying there is no problem so big and so complicated that's been there for so long that I can't bring it back to life. These bones were dead and dry and forgotten and God spoke and little by little the pieces began to come together. And yeah, if you catch a work in the middle, it can be a little gross and weird. If you saw the middle of this process with just the muscle and sinew hanging off the bones, it might have looked creepy. And a lot of times we're that way. You catch us in the middle of a work and it doesn't always look great. 
But he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus. So as we consider today what life, real life, looks like, as we consider these broken and beat down son, watching his father sprint across the lawn to him, as you consider God who has the power and desire to speak life into things that seem beyond saving, let me ask you, what is rattling in your soul today? What is God calling to life? What is dead and needing resurrection? We serve a God who dumps lavish grace on those who turn to Him. There is no son. There is no Samaritan. There is no Pharisee. There is no skeleton. There is no Tonganoxy chieftain who is so far that God can't bring them back to life. But there's a catch. There's always a catch. In the same hopeful passage where God shows Ezekiel that he can raise dead, dry, forgotten bones to life. That there is no dead that is too dead for God. And in the same passage where Jesus describes a father's love that overcomes anger and outrage and embarrassment and disappointment and hurt and fear and sadness to celebrate a son's restoration, in both passages, there's a warning. As good as it feels to be restored and accepted and loved and resurrected by the grace of God, I can promise you that God is going to extend that same grace to somebody that makes you really uncomfortable. In both passages, God says, write Judah on one board, write their enemy on the other, and stick them together. Who's on your other board? What's that person look like? God calls a valley of death back to life. Yay! And then he immediately says, oh yeah, this isn't just for you, this is for the bad guys. Oh. God tells the story of a son's re- return and reunion to his family. Yay! But he warns about how uncomfortable that makes the other brother. Ooh. You know what I, you know what I would think would crush the darkness today? What I think would rock this world Two things. When people learn to stand in the grace of God, for one, we know that. Not their own effort, not their own devotion, not their own discipline and holiness, but the fact that we are broken people who are fully known and fully loved by the maker of heaven and earth. If we could get that into our souls. And, and when the followers of Jesus Christ stop allowing petty differences to divide us, and instead learn to celebrate anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. In our world of division and polarization, I don't think the darkness would know what to do with the day that a Protestant Christian grabs the hand of a Catholic Christian and say, we are one body. When a black Christian grabs the hand of a white Christian and says, we are on the same team. When a Jewish Christian and an Arab Christian see themselves as members of the same kingdom. When a Republican Christian and a Democrat Christian say, we are part of the same kingdom party. When millennials and boomers stand together in the name of Jesus, Paul says there's neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, slave nor free. We are all one in Christ. Can you hear Ezekiel's words in that? I'm going to write your name on one board and that person that drives you nuts on the other board and I'm going to make one board. 
The world's MO is division. It is to keep us separate and fighting with each other. And as long as we're fighting with each other, we cannot fight the darkness. And I know we're supposed to be focusing this morning on seeing resurrection life in our relationship with God. But in the story where Jesus most clearly reveals the loving, restorative grace of the Father, there's also another brother. Which makes sense, considering Jesus says the most important thing to remember is love God and love people. And we talked about loving people, he says, there's one equal, equal to the first command. John made it even more blunt. If someone says, I love God, but hates his fellow believer, that person's a liar. Period. If you don't love God, you can, uh, if you don't love people, you can see how you can love God and you can't see. And I wish I had time to rattle off the long list of all the times the New Testament writers said things like, if you don't forgive your brother, God won't forgive you. When you're doing this to your brother, you're doing it unto me. And on and on and on and on. It is maybe the biggest theme of the New Testament. So I guess the way that I would love to respond to this message would be to see the deep and inseparable link between a resurrected life with God and a deep, loving acceptance of people. And then go act on that. The father in Jesus' story commends the older son's faithfulness. He's certainly not recommending like lawless living. You should run off like your brother did. No, that's not what he says. He says, everything I have is yours. The only problem he has, the only beef he has with the older brother is that he, that he won't accept and love the younger brother. So this morning, God is, is open to us. He's, he's running to us. We just have to accept. People say all the time, God loves you the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. And we usually mean he's going to tell you to stop drinking, smoking, cussing, gambling, dancing. Like, that's what we normally mean. I agree with that statement, but I think it means God loves you too much to let you hate somebody else. He is going to beat on you and work on you and chip on you because his plan has always been to put your name on one, put their name on another, put you together. We titled this message, In the Game of Life, Move One Step Up. I think that's what God has called us to do. Let's go to the table.